Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Peyton Head, a recent graduate of the University of Missouri, about life at Mizzou. Hey, Peyton. Hello there. It's so good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, too. I met you, you were a junior, I guess, in 2015, March 2015. Yes. I came to Mizzou, and I was there to give a talk at my alma mater um, for a women's leadership conference, and I see these two beautiful black students in front of me, (laughs) and they're like, we're the student vice president and the student... um, you know, body president. And I was like, really? It was amazing. And remi- I don't know if you remember I this. Remember I said that. to you, I said, someone's got to write a story about this. Mm-hmm. This is amazing that at this campus, we have an African-American president and vice president. And you were got, you guys were like, oh, I don't know. Is that a big a deal? I guess there's <laughs> stories about us. But I was like, no, this is this should be national news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said that because of my experiences at the University of Missouri in, in the 90s. And little did we know um, how much that would mean for your experiences. Oh, yes. <laughs> so where do we start? Um, How did you get to Mizzou? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so long story short, I followed my sister. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, um, both of us are from Chicago originally. And so am I, so this is just yeah, too much okay. fun. <laughs> and so she was very much interested in journalism. And I had, um, you know, I, I never had any intentions of going to the University of Missouri. I was like, what the heck is a Mizzou? And my sister was saying, you know, the University of Missouri is number one in the nation for journalism. So there's no other better place for me to go. And so we went and traveled there with her, and I absolutely fell in love with the campus. How much and, older is she than you? Um, we're twins. So oh, I'm 17 minutes older than her. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a twin thing yes. that needs to be retired. Twins will be like, I'm 40 seconds older. <laughs> so, okay, so your sister really was the kind of engine for yes. this. Okay. And I had a similar, I had the same scholarship that I had to Mizzou um, down to Morehouse down south. And I was trying to figure out, you know, let me go down here and do this or let me go to the University of Missouri. I can be with my sister. Um, I had several conversations with my brother. I didn't decide fully on Mizzou until maybe a week before school began because I was getting all of these emails from Atlanta. (laughs) Wait a second. So where did you commit to go to? Um, see about that. <laughs> I committed to Mizzou at the last minute. So you were committed to Morehouse? No, I was committed to Mizzou. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. But I was still getting emails from admissions. Got it. At Morehouse saying that it wasn't too late. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, we'll see. My brother said he wanted, he really wanted me to go to Morehouse. He's like, obviously, like, you're studying political science, international affairs. They have the resources. They have whatever you need to be successful. They're more top-ranked. But it was just something that attracted me to Mizzou. I think it was the idea of being in a setting that looked completely different than you know, where I was, and obviously Atlanta looks completely different than Chicago, but it was something that attracted me there, the idea of being around white students. Would that be a first for you? Yes. So, um, you know, south side of Chicago and yeah. the south suburbs, uh, the, the area is predominantly black. So my high school, I went to Rich South High School, mm-hmm. um, and it was about 95% black. Interesting. So it was a very... Um, 
I would say that it was an amazing experience, honestly. Like, I, I felt so much love there. Um, I felt welcome. I felt appreciated. Um, but my brother was saying, you know, he wants me to step out of my comfort zone. Um, and he said that, and, and although he was convincing me to go down south to Morehouse, he yeah. said, you also need to be in a space where white people can see that there are people who look like you who can be successful, who can achieve. Um, and that was one of my biggest goals when I came to Mizzou. So this is interesting. Um, on the podcast, I talked to a young woman who goes to Howard, mm-hmm. and she talks about the kind of magic of the HBCU. Yeah. But it's, I think it, it is about an orientation, right? Mm-hmm. So you probably didn't imagine Morehouse to be that different, even if it was mm-hmm. going to be, than where you came from. Yeah. I knew I knew because I mean it brings in people from all around the world, right. and I think that's the thing that people get on this this HBCU versus oh my gosh, PWR on Twitter, thing. If, talk oh. about top ten things that need to die. Mm-hmm. That conversation on Twitter, it, it's too much. Yeah, it's too much. I but hate it. Anyway, I hate it. Oh my gosh! Did you do you feel it acutely when it starts to trend again because you made the decision to go to a PWI instead of an HBCU? Um. Or is it just annoying? It's just, I think the biggest thing is it's just annoying because it creates this divide. I mean, like, we should be celebrating the fact that black people have access to higher education. And wherever you're going, you know, you're getting an education. Mm-hmm. And that's there's something so powerful about that. And I think that supremacy is in is in this separation and in this mm-hmm. divide between this whole HBCU versus PWI thing. And so you did get quite the education mm-hmm. at Mizzou. Um, so... What was it like that first week of school? Oh, it was scary. It was scary because it was so different. Um, I still remember being at our summer orientation, summer welcome, and just looking around, and I'm like, how the hell am I going to make any friends here? Everybody is white. And even just being there at the university, I I was thinking, like, did I make the right decision? Did I, you know, how can I do this? And something just told me that, you know, it will be okay. And I had my twin sister there, and we had two friends from high school who were also black. And we were just our little support system for the first week there until I started branching out into the community. And so the first week of college is a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I remember my first week at Mizzou is I had to do a family wedding. So Mm -hmm. I showed up to college the day before classes start at like 1030 at night with my own stuff. I mean, it was just like, oh, I talked about this in my keynote. Like, I was a mess. I had no plan. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, though, I do remember is that when everyone, um, with so many students rushing uh, fraternities and sororities, it seems like everybody knows each other and is wearing the same shirt before it even Mm -hmm. starts. And you feel like, so there's the racial isolation. And because so few black students participate in that Greek system, mm-hmm. it's like, you were like, what happened? I did not get the memo to get the T-shirt. And you just feel like such And you're a already loser. behind. And yeah. they're like, how did this happen? Yeah. This has never happened to me. So I, I, I know that acclimation feeling. Um, I went to school with a lot of white kids, so I don't think that was shocking. I think the thing that is shocking about a school like Mizzou is that as a student of color at that time, you were marked as so unqualified yeah. before – Anything could even suggest that. Mm -hmm. And so kind of going into that environment in your time, what was that like? You felt like, how are you perceived as a student? Um, I really don't know because I use that feeling that I had of exclusion to motivate me. Okay. And 
I think that goes back to that lesson that that common lesson that black parents give their children like you work twice at hard, twice as hard. But it was something about that that inherently um just made me want to work hard that made me want to be in as many organizations you know of power of 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 community building as possible to build up some credibility it made me want to succeed academically you know i was doing very well my first semester in my classes i was sitting at the front row like i remember hearing my brother in the back of my mind like yeah you have to be the best that you can be because people around you you're not doing this for you you're doing this for them they need to see that black men on college campuses can succeed and so uh the very first organization i joined was the Mizzou Black Men's Initiative and that is what kind of gave me grounds within my community to be able to uh have a place to talk about different different issues and and uh branch off into the communities and what other kind of things did you guys talk about in that group um i think it it was we talked a lot about like leadership development um and the importance of mentorship um among black men and i i often talk about this now as i talk about like the importance of being intentionally intersectional as i always say mm-hmm. in in our approach to activism or whatever it may be um but for me i have always feel i always felt like i've been motivated a step further because it wasn't always about being twice as hard as being black it was working three times as hard for being black and gay. Mm. And even in those settings, you know, there was a level of exclusion that I would feel cuz I couldn't always connect with everybody. You know, it's interesting. So, we didn't have Black Male Initiative, which there's a lot of chapters mm-hmm. on different campuses when I was in college and recently a chapter asked me to come by and chat with them and I was like, "Oh god, an all men's space." You know, is this really where you want me to be? Because I have so many critiques, so many <laughs> critiques. And I got there, and I was just really happy to see so many of the men really want to fight homophobia, yeah. really wanting to kind of, you know, destabilize dude culture and, you know, trying to be really loving and supportive with each other. And I said, okay, I need to get of get out of what that meant when I was a student mm-hmm. for all men to do something it did not have this desire to be intersectional yeah. but I think that there's always that tension about as a student where do you belong do yeah. you organize with um you know the gay community do you organize with the black students and did you find an ability to kind of be able to do both effectively oh yeah because I got to the point where I was crying all the time. I was struggling with coming out to my family, which was a shit show to be honest with you, like cuz I fell out the closet. So like like my sister accidentally slipped and told my mom, my mom told my dad, my dad told his girlfriend and his whole side of the family knew. And then ev- all of a sudden everybody knew that I was gay but me. And so it was just a it was like mess. a game of telephone. It was. And I was just struggling and then I got to a point where I'm like I have given so much of myself to everybody else just mm. growing up. Like it wasn't my black identity, it was my queer identity that's been the source of my ambition my entire life. Oh, just so that one day I knew that I would have to come out to my parents and I knew that I would have to come out to the world. Did you feel like you had to be perfect before you could come out? Oh yeah. Like in school I had to get straight A's. I had I in high school I was student body vice president. I was first chair for the trombone section and band. I was, you know, a national scholar, all of these different things. And even when I got to college that same like mentality I was going through the same things like homecoming king, student body president, um all of these honors and awards that you can think of and I'm like I I, I when I'm packed up and left college I see all of this stuff in a box, all of these different awards and 
all, I was decked out at graduation with all these cords, and I realized like none of that means anything at the mm. day. At the end of the day, like if you don't love yourself, if you don't support yourself, if you don't like validate who you are before you let anybody else validate you, then it means nothing. Somebody can tell you every single day that you're so great and you're so wonderful, but if you don't believe it yourself, then um, it doesn't mean anything. And so, as you're, when did this falling out of the closet happen? It happened at the end of my freshman year. So it happened early. Yes, very so early. So you returned to campus for your sophomore year. Mm-hmm. You are now out to your friends at school. Mm-hmm. And your family has been on the phone talking sure. about yeah, you. Yeah, they've been talking about me behind my back. You. Uh-huh. And so um, did you find a sense of freedom in that? Um, yes, it was strangely. Like, I say that it's it was one of the worst things that happened to me and one of the best things as well because it— I had no choice but to be unapologetic in who I was. Mm. Um, and that was one of the greatest gifts that I could give to me because I, I realized, like, the people who were here are here. The people who didn't want to be around me, the people who, like, won't appreciate me for me, they're gone. And that happens a lot of times in life, and a lot of times people don't have the privilege to be able to, to weed out some of the snakes in their garden. Mm. And so I do say that it was one of the greatest gifts that I could have had, because I knew who my ride or dies were. Right. And um, I was ready, you know, to to get offer that to Mizzou. And so in this process of, you now have the kind of the pressure about being in the closet, mm-hmm. that's somewhat resolved within your personal community. Now racism. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there's a way that, you know, like some of the stuff around your identity is mediated by, you know, your your relationships with individual people. And you're doing it in the climate in which the racism is structural. Oh, yeah. It's institutional. It's insidious. And it isn't a matter of you just, you know, saying, oh, well, this is who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And then the racism goes away. Yeah. Or in the internalized stuff. So what was happening kind of to the lead up? Um, to the moment where everyone is watching Mizzou, right? Yeah. Because I think the more interesting part are the parts that the world wasn't watching. Mm-hmm. And so maybe tell me about the beginning of your senior year. Yeah. What happened? Well, I think it goes back to the end of my sophomore year. Um, and that was like my decision to stay in Mizzou. Because I, at one point, like dealing with the racism, I have been walking through Greektown. Um, I was on my way because I was learning more about LGBTQ identities, and one of my best friends was transitioning, so we were going to his tea party. And, uh, yeah, I, and there was some guys on the back of a pickup truck and all their frat regalia just yelling the N-word at me over and over and over again. And it was so traumatizing to the point where I just wanted to pack up and I wanted to leave. And it was interesting because I tried to confide in people and tell them the story. A lot of black people, and they're like, that experience is uncommon. So it's not like anybody could a lot of people I knew could be able to relate because it's like, oh, well, people do that all the time. And it's like, should we accept that? People do that all the time, like where I'm from, or Mm -hmm. people do that all the time here. And And I'm like a Chicago Southside kid, all these black people around me. I'm not used to white people red in the face yelling, Mm -hmm. you know, racial slurs at me from the back of a pickup truck. And so that was when I really got serious about, like, activism on campus. And, I mean, I had been doing it. I had been uh, working with the Chancellor's Diversity Initiative as an ambassador since my freshman year. Um, that was at their first uh, big collaborative is when I called out the chancellor, the chancellor before our chancellor that resigned. 
and said, you know, we have these initiatives that are in place, but they are serving the university at a media perspective as opposed to addressing the issues that we have. And they said, yeah, we're doing something about it. This was my freshman year. I called out the chancellor. I don't know how I had the balls to do that, but I've been fed up. Fast forward to um, senior year. I had been serving um, as student body president since the fall of 2014. A historic election. And it was an amazing time and also a very tense time because you could just feel like I, people, a lot of times people don't really understand it, but I could feel what was blowing, what that Mizzou was going to blow up. And as student body president, I was in a unique position because I told the administrators this every single second that I got. And I'm like, this can be put in place. This can be put in place. We should have a forum on this. We should address this issue. We should put out a statement on this. Every single second that I got, I because, I mean, I had developed a really good relationship with our mm-hmm. administration because I'm like, if I don't have a good relationship with you all, then I can't serve the other 28,000 students that I'm representing, undergraduate right. students at Mizzou. Well, it's interesting because I remember when I came to visit and mm-hmm. I talked to you and Brenna? Brenda? Brenda, yeah. And um, I think... Everyone I talked to when I was there was like, you know, we didn't do anything about Ferguson here. Yeah. And I was like, what? And, you know, less than two hours away from campus, and I and you told me there was a die-in in the student yeah. center. But you said, you know, the administration has done nothing about Ferguson. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I said, I said, this is not a sustainable approach to the national conversation. Mm-hmm. I remember you guys told me that. Oh, yeah. And... I guess nothing came of it. And that was the thing that that people don't realize is that Ferguson was the catalyst. Mm-hmm. That's why people are like, well, why did this blow up at Missouri the way it did? Well, I uh, my campaign started um, basically the day that everything happened in Ferguson. And so it started during the riots. And the, the vision that came behind our campaign platform, which was to ignite Mizzou, Surprisingly, that really did happen. <laughs> we didn't think that Mizzou would blow up as big as it did. We just thought it was cute. It was supposed to be that fire to be the change, mm-hmm. to, to change the, up, the way things had always gone in the past. You know, we were electing this double slate of black folks, uh, president and vice president, and, and we were really going to call out what needed to be called out. And I remember when I moved into my office, the president before me, I, I said, why haven't you all put out anything on Ferguson or pressured the administration on Ferguson? They haven't done anything about it. And she said, we're not taking a stance on that. That's too controversial. What? And so she passed over the office to me. And the first thing that I did as student government president is I sent out a mass email to the entire student body, letting them know the resources that existed and that the student government would be taking a stance on Ferguson and um you know, challenging existing race relations on campus to create a more inclusive campus. That was the very first thing I did. And it was awful because I remember moving in my office and just looking outside and seeing the sunset over campus. And I know this is dramatic, but I could feel the tension. Like I could feel it like in my heart and in my bones that something was going to happen. Um, And so for that fall, I met with administration and, you know, they finally decided that they were going to address what was happening in in Ferguson two hours away. And I remember being upset because I saw messaging come out about like supporting, you know, black people from the University of Southern Mississippi or something like that, something real deep south. So the university did respond to Ferguson? They didn't put out a statement. They did not put out a statement. They didn't put out anything and it happened two hours away. Like we were one of the, you know, how it's set up. So it was completely unacceptable. And we saw the first protest 
um, that was led by three black queer women. And we were all there the very first protest of, of the fall of... Um, what was that, 2014? Yeah. And so there were protests and there were demonstrations all the way through 2014. And then 2015 gets here. And um, our administration, they're like, oh, it's a wonderful summer. And it was good because I was, you know, I was out there talking about it. I presented at the White House and at the National Campus Leadership Council's uh, um Convention on like with student body presidents about how to handle diversity and inclusion, how to pressure your administration. And so Mizzou at the time, like to other student body presidents at least, was like the champion of diversity and inclusion, which was hilarious. So it made me look dumb come the fall when I'm walking through campus after working for inclusion since my freshman year. Um, and I was walking through campus on my way downtown to Hotbox Cookies, of course. <laughs> Because, you know, they got some good cookies. And the same thing happens to me my sophomore year. And this time, like, I didn't know what to do because I, I was like, I'm sick of this shit, honestly. That's, that's all I could think about because I'm like, I've been fighting for inclusion since day one. And there were still people like these boys on the back of this pickup truck yelling the N-word at me that will not ever have to sit through a diversity seminar, will not ever have to worry about how they make somebody else feel because of the way that they identify and that there's things that an, a university can do and there's things that a university can put in place to discourage and condemn that type of behavior. And at the University of Missouri, we don't do it. And so I took to Facebook and I wrote about my experience. And not only did I write about my experience with racism, I talked about homophobia. I talked about transphobia in a very, very heated like fashion. And it was like two paragraphs of just how I was sick of this. And, um, you know, I signed the message as your nigger, faggot, student body president. Trigger warning. Oh, the trigger warning should have came before. That's right. We'll, we'll put a... <laughs> we, we put E for explicit. But, yeah. And I posted, and I went about my day, went to bed, woke up the next morning <laughs> with almost 4,000 shares. Uh, and little did I know that this would be the catalyst to start a national movement. And the next week, when the university failed to respond to my incident of, quotation marks, bias and discrimination, um, that's when Danielle Walker grabbed her bullhorn, stood in speaker's circle, and the very first protest of the fall of 2015 happened. So I, I have so many questions. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> one of the things that um, I want to focus on a little bit is about being afraid. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that I think people miss in a lot of this is just how scary yeah. this behavior is. Mm -hmm. and, I, and we forget to count for the impact. Yeah. When someone is in the back of the pickup truck, you don't know if they are going to start and end with the slur or if that was the beginning of mm -hmm. something far more terrible. And um, wow. that's something that I it makes me so angry when people are very critical of students who talk about safety. They don't ever imagine people of color as being scared. We're just always scary. Mm -hmm. And so what is it like to go on camp to be on a campus and feel scared? Um, it was horrible. It happened all through fall of 2015 and even the spring of 2016 up until I graduated because overnight I was a high-profile individual. 
Um, and even after those boys, you know, yelled the N-word at me, like, which produced a level of fear in me, um, I felt like I could handle that more than what was to come after that. Wow. Um, after the university started, like, making national news after a series of events happened after mine and students felt empowered to speak out on it, um, I started getting blamed for everything. And so, you know, there... Who was blaming you? White people. Random people. I got angry uh, letters from alumni to my office. I got hate mail, death threats, um, and it it was insane. It really just felt like like the world I knew it would never be the same. And it actually drove me into a state of depression, um, which is something that we don't talk about in, in activism spaces as a lot of time, as much as we should is mental health, um, because there was a point where. Um, I was getting so many tweets into my account of like death threats and just sheer hatred. Um, uh, when Ferguson activist D. Ray McKesson came to campus, like he called the vice president of Twitter to like help, to have them like monitor and like weed out some of the crap that was coming into my account every day. Because I was getting, I would reload my phone and have like 50 mentions at me, like every single second. So it was it was definitely a challenge moving forward. What kept you there? At, at any point, did your parents call you and be like, okay, Peyton, this is done. Like, you're going home. Um, no, because they didn't know what was going on. What do you mean? Uh, my parents are old as hell. <laughs> so. <laughs> Wait, hey, time out. You know what? You young people, calling people old as hell. They are old as hell. so wrong. My, my dad is 77. Okay. He was born in 1938. I, I Thank you. I can do the math. Okay. Thank you. So your parents are a little on the older side. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what does this mean? Um, they don't follow? They don't follow. They don't have smartphones, social media, any of that. They didn't know that I was becoming a national public figure overnight. Surely someone was telling them. If if your sexuality can make it through the like family phone line, I, it, why can't It this? wasn't making it. It was like, oh, I saw Peyton on the news. Oh, Peyton's on the news. Oh, that's wonderful. Anyway, I bought some groceries today. Really? Like, that was my conversation with my mom. Like, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I heard you were on the news. Good luck. And I'm like, Mom, they're trying to kill me out here. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to my doctor's appointment today. So really, they were very removed they, from this. They, I guess it's very difficult because they don't... It's they don't very, engage in... Yeah, it's, it's very hard because their minds are so much different than our minds are today, mm-hmm. Like especially like in a millennial mindset. Nowadays, with the way media is set up, people have so much access. Right. They have more access to you as an individual than they've ever had before. Absolutely. So there was one point where they were pulling up my dad's bank account, like all the places that he's worked. They tracked how many times I went to the White House and said I was a secret Obama spy. Wait, who's doing this? I don't know. It was like all these It's like doxing and stuff. Mm -hmm. Anything that they could find to discredit me as a human being. They were looking to find it. And so while this is happening, what is your sister doing? Um, my sister was out there protesting, out there demonstrating as well. If you look at the, the college website for National Demand, she's on the front in her work polo raising her fist for the student unions. And <laughs> did you feel like this very difficult time was more manageable because your sister was with you? Yes, I believe that things happen for a reason, that you're always where you're supposed to be at the right time, even when I question, like, why was I at Mizzou my, my earlier years? But 
once everything was happening, I knew why I was at Mizzou. Yeah. I knew that that was my home. And even now, like, as it was a place where I endured a lot of hatred, there was so much more love than hatred. And that's what doesn't make the front page of the paper. So tell me about some of the love that you did get during um, this time. A lot of times it was just random validation of students. Because in all of that, there were calls made. The Columbia uh, City Magazine mm-hmm. put out... Um, uh, an article, not an article, but a survey, like saying, like, do you support Peyton Head resigning from student body president from causing national panic and fear? The legislature at one time I heard was trying to get me arres- uh, arrested. Wait, you know, I, I don't think I realized just how much you were the the scapegoat. I know Jonathan Butler, mm-hmm. the young man who did the hunger strike, was often a target. I don't, th- I think I didn't realize the extent in which people were implicating you mm-hmm. as causing this. Oh, yeah, because they said it was my Facebook post that uncovered all of this stuff that that is basically BS, like all of its lies. And so in the middle of all of this, what is the administration, how are they engaging with you while this is happening? Um, they're not, um, because I got to a point where I'm like, I'm, I can't waste my time with you all anymore. And... My thing was is I never wanted Mizzou to like, like I nobody wants their university to blow up the way it did. If yeah. things were done the right way at Mizzou, it shouldn't have happened that way. Like if people were willing to listen and not only listen but act on what they've heard, it would be fine. Because I gave them the things to do like throughout the year, and, and I'm like I know I don't have that much power as a student, but as a student government president, I'm telling you these are the things that are going to advocate for the best well-being of your students. And you're in these positions, and you're not doing anything about it. And so it, I was over halfway through my term when I realized I'm like I've been sitting here in these meetings every single month, and I give them this legislation that student government has passed, and I and I look back and I'm looking at old newspaper articles from the you know the man eater the student newspaper, and I'm like these things that we We've been working on mental health, sexual assault, like all of these issues have been issues for so long. And I'm I'm having the same conversations that I'm pretty sure that people were having 20 years ago. Same thing with faculty council um, talking about this diversity course requirement. And they started these conversations in 1994, but it was 2015 and they still had voted it down. And so the decision then to take it to the quad mm-hmm. and build the tent city and create this community, did you stay in the tent city with the protesters? Um, <laughs> I was there, but um, I was there during the day. Mm-hmm. But my friends and like my fraternity brothers, they would not let me stay there at night. Were they concerned about your safety? Mm-hmm. Because I was getting so many threats. And even, like, I remember I was just at, uh, what's the name of that restaurant? La Siesta downtown. And there was a man who was red in the face who was legitimately screaming at me. Like, blaming me for every single thing that had happened to the point where I couldn't take any, like, I was in tears. And I was so shook up that I was ready to leave Mizzou the next day. And... Uh, luckily, there were some students who came up to me, and it was white students, too, you know, who paid for my meal and everything and patted me on the back and just were saying, like, you know, we really appreciate the work that you've done as our student body president and everything. And, like, we we can't only imagine how hard it was. And honestly, it was had action that it, like, helped me realize that, you know, there still is love in this place. But I was ready to go. I was done. Because the emotional trauma alone, like, I I was very disengaged. 
um, from the university community. I was I was disengaged in my classes because. Well, I was. That's one of the questions mm-hmm. that I asked. Um, is anyone going to class? Is anyone learning? People were trying to go to class, but it was so difficult. And I think the other viol- the, the the fact that there's supremacy and violence and and so many different things that people don't understand, like. It's not always like you calling somebody the N-word. It's what you, it's your actions. And so the amount of teachers, as Mizzou was a national media ph- phenomenon, the amount of professors and teachers that just ignored everything that was happening at our university instead of trying to open up a real dialogue about systemic racism in classes where it could actually be talked about. Like, I'm in political science. Like, inclusion and diversity relates to political science when you're learning about, you know, a nation that was built on the backs of slaves and and the genocide of Native American people. Like, the fact that they would go along their day, act like CNN and MSNBC and, you know, Al Jazeera and all these different groups weren't on our quad with light shining on the administrative building on Jesse Hall. Like, all of this is happening. A media firestorm. People are flying in from all over the place in the Missouri. And they're acting like nothing's happening. And I couldn't, it, it got to the point where it made me sick just being there, like, looking at that and then seeing the way some of my professors would just, like, look at me, like, blaming me for everything. So it's very difficult. And um, I never really got the chance to talk about that with administration because I was too busy being there for them. You know, what do you mean? Even, even at one point, like, especially after the resignations, I said, you know, this is a critical time to be very critical you know, and intentional in who you put in these interim positions. Because people thought that it was just a chancellor level and a system president problem. No, like that's just the top of it. Our One of our biggest issues was with our vice chancellor of communications. And I think that's why a lot of it blew up because, um, you know, she was the one saying that everybody was, was going to be safe on campus. And they weren't, you know, they were, we were hearing things that, you know, that the Black Culture Center was being watched over 24-7. Um, and we woke up the next morning and black and black culture center was mm-hmm. blacked out. And for me, a student government president, I'm like, God forbid anything happens to any of the students on this campus, because it seems like that is the national trend. Um, well, that's the trend at Mizzou, that the only time we get serious about an issue is when somebody's life is on the line. As this was happening, mm-hmm. I was at my house and I'm watching television and there's this really surreal feeling because these are all the places I know. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's the quad. Yeah. There's the building. Those are the people that were there when I was a student. Um, and I was just in pure rage. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can't even describe the feelings of I couldn't believe it had gotten so bad. Yeah. And um, as a member of the alumni community, not really knowing what to make of this because it is so unbelievable and it is so consistent Mm -hmm. with the experiences that I think a lot of people of color had on that campus. Um, I wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and I wanted to just talk about this weird feeling of knowing where you guys are at, Mm -hmm. and this is the first time there's been an international audience to watch it happen, that this was not the first time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hope it's the last. But one of the things that was really important for me to communicate to the students who are currently at Mizzou was that um, you are not... You're, you're not making this up, mm-hmm. that we all know what the story is, yeah. and we all know what that experience is like, and we all know what that town is like, and we all know what it's like to be afraid. 
what was it like for you to also see on Twitter pictures of students on this campus at Georgetown, at Yale, and so many students standing in solidarity with Mizzou? Um, it really meant the world to me because I think a lot of the good was buried. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my eyes, and I know people were monitoring what I could and what I, I couldn't see because at one point, like, my friends had to take my phone away from me. Yeah. Um, and when I saw those pictures, it was showing, like, wow, like, there are people, like, this is becoming a national movement because people care about this issue, and this is something that has been ignored for so long in this country. And honestly, it's what, it was the, the thing that, that really helped me because I felt so alone. And, and, the, and the way that I speak about it is through my lens as the student body president. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of the other student organizers, like the Concerned Student 1950 and, you know, the Racism Lives Here, they had a completely different perspective because um, they didn't have as much of, res- of a responsibility that I had. Yeah. At the same time, like, I had to balance, like, being Peyton, the public official, who was still representing 28,000 students coming from all 50 states, all of the counties in Missouri, and over 120 different countries worldwide. And I had a responsibility to them as well. And I had a responsibility to to educate them and to let them know to trust me, you know, that we're going to get through this and that I've been working hard since day one to make this a campus that's going to be equitable for all of us and better for all of us in the long run. After the resignations mm-hmm. and, you know, after after the football team and after the resignations and, you know, mm-hmm. Jonathan Butler um, calls off his strike, um, it's still school. Yeah. It's still the school year. Mm-hmm. It's this weird kind of thing that happens where there's this calamity mm-hmm. and it ends in a sense – and now you have to continue being the student body president. Yeah. You have to continue being a senior. Yeah. What is that like when it ends? Um, it was hard. It was difficult to say the least because I think a lot of people saw the resignations as like um, the resolution. Mm. And... I knew, like, I remember the second of the resignations. We were in Tent City on the quad at the campsite. And while everybody was out there celebrating and swag surfing, my cabinet and I, we were in a tent brainstorming, like, what we were going to do. Because we knew that this, any, I always think like this, anytime there's a liberal action, there's a conservative reaction. So I knew that all hell was about to break loose. Um, and I tried to warn administration of this. I tried to let them know, you know, like there's certain things that need to be put in place. It got so bad, the threats that were coming in. After the resignation. After the resignations. Mm. And it was the scariest day of my life. There were, uh, there were, uh, when nighttime fell, there, the threats came. That was the time with the rumors mm-hmm. and no one knew. And people were like... I, I mean, the Facebook page, um, I was part of the MU Social Justice mm-hmm. Facebook page, and people are volunteering apartments and giving yeah. people rides and saying, we're getting out mm-hmm. of town. People left town and went home to St. Louis and Kansas City. Like, people left. And what what was it? Was it Yik Yak or all it sorts was, of nonsense? Um, it was Yik Yak, um, where somebody said that they were going to— That's right, the mm-hmm. kid in Rolla. 
shoot every last black kid on campus. Yeah. And so students were like, these threats came out. I remember we were sitting in a joint session for the student government. So like the residence halls and in a fraternity, Panhellenic. Um, all of us were in there, the grad students. Um, and all of a sudden, my, my uh, director of student activities, she starts screaming, like screaming hysterically. Oh, my God. And can't, like, stop crying. And she sees the threats, and all of a sudden, all of us are in panic, and the building is on lockdown. Um, and then we're escorted out of the building by the state trooper. What? Mm-hmm. Through campus, it was about maybe 60 of us escorted, like, arm-in-arm with me in the middle, since I was the largest target. We were escorted by the uh, the state trooper to the Black Culture Center, um, where they were keeping students there and then uh, sending them home from there, making sure that people got safe rides from there. Oh, my gosh. And it was horrible. Uh, people did not stay in the, the campsite that night. Um, there was... Uh, People on the back of a pickup truck waving the Confederate flag, driving through campus, which was scaring the, the bejesus out of everybody. And then a lot of people don't know this because the university refused to put out a communication statement on it. But there was a neo-Nazi group that was behind all of the different rumors that were put in place. They got that got put in people's emails. They were planning on doing like a university-wide attack. Um, like of all of the websites, they started planting pictures of black faces, like black student faces, on Twitter and tweeting out the KKK are on campus. Um, and that's when the hysteria got like it fever was pitch because fever pitch. because the big thing I remember from that mm-hmm. was there were all these. I think you might have tweeted out like mm-hmm. "Be safe, everybody," and then it's like, "Well, these are just rumors," mm-hmm. and and then I think you said, "You know, I'm I'm sorry if I got." I think you had yeah. t- posted something like, "I'm sorry if I'm hasty, y'all." I'm just you know yeah. because how are you supposed to assess what's real or what's mm-hmm. fake at any given moment? Because we couldn't. The 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 reality of the situation is that people don't get because that is when the hellstorm came in for me. Mm. Because I was the national Black Lives Matter person because I said that the KKK were on campus because the MU Alert system, which was supposed to tweet out and stuff, had failed us many times before. Um, the, the, the biggest time that it failed us before that, which had me livid, and everybody in administration seemed to be so calm about it, is the fact that there was a bomb threat on the student center and they put off the alarm or whatever, but there were not alarms in certain areas of the student center. None of the social justice centers had these alarms. The Center for Student Involvement, where my staff was working, my whole communications team was up there, had no notification that this was going out. So it's been historic to, like, fail us on occasion. And so when I got the notice um, through, like, the fake account, that's when I put out the info, like, the KKK have been spotted to be on campus. Um, like, and then at the time, I was on the phone with the Department of Justice. Like, and, and so I put that out there. Like, I'm, I'm working with DOJ, like FBI, like whoever I can to make sure that students are safe. All of a sudden, it was, I was a national liar. And I have never experienced hatred like that in my life from that moment than than any other time before. Let me, let me ask Like, you, you could still Google me and find all of this stuff that comes up about me. Let me ask you, Peyton, while this is happening, who are you talking to? 
Um, who's helping you out? And and not, not just your peers, but like grown ups, or mm-hmm. and and not not in a demeaning way, but you know, like where are you getting the kind of mentorship or support to help you sort through all of this? A lot of it was my um, my fraternity brothers um, and my sister mm-hmm. and my cabinet. Mm-hmm. We were we all stayed together. We like slept together. Like we did not travel by ourselves. Like nobody wanted me traveling by myself. I did not go home because my address was on in the in the the university server, and there were threats on my house. So they called uh, the Columbia Police Department to like do drive-bys to make sure that everything was okay. But it had gotten so bad. Like the hate mail that was coming through, and like I was getting hate mail before. But then again, like, it was, people didn't really have that much to come for me on. You know, yeah, you could say, like, you know, this stuff isn't really important and you all are a bunch of whiners and, you know, like, people came out with this The whole, trolls have the same yeah, five things Yeah, like the, the coddled college student, and that's what, like, legislators were saying. Yeah, right. and um, even President Obama said something like, well, we, you know, we have to have this dialogue, but have we have seen. to. Yeah. But that was when the haters came because they had something on me. And that hate, I still can't get it out, out of me. Like, it, it messed me up so much mentally um, that there were days where I would go by and I just couldn't speak. Yeah. And um, I'd even been said, told that, I, like, I should sue the university for that. Like, it, was, it had gotten that bad because the university didn't ever put out a statement to clarify anything. Or say, you know, Peyton was just trying to, you know, warn the students as to what happened because we have failed historically— in these areas of communication, they fired the vice chancellor of communications quietly. And so it still looked like there was no, nothing for administration to be blamed on. So they fired her quietly. They slipped in an interim. Nobody knew about it um, and kept it moving. And so you, you get to the spring semester. Mm-hmm. What was it like going home for winter break? Um, after after a semester like that, it was very very. Um, it was difficult. Um, it was hard. Uh, Does your family celebrate Christmas? Yeah. What's Christmas like after a school year like that? It was. I don't know. It was. It, it was. I don't know. It was much better. I felt better being in Chicago. Yeah. And even though my neighborhood is really bad and unsafe, like I'm like right at 82nd and Sangamon area, uh, Gresham, Auburn. It was. It was just something that was so good about just, like, being home. And, like, I was so traumatized. Like, I was still, like, this was the first time that I had, like, actually, like, been medicated for mental health. And and so I was just working on trying to heal. Um, But it was just something really good about just being home and being away from it that... um, that helped me out, and I only did an, one interview, and that was with Al Jazeera. So, um, did I see on Melissa Harris Perry also though? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I you did were Melissa excellent Harris on Perry. that. Thank you. You were at the WMAQ headquarters in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I saw that. You looked really good. <laughs> Thank you. So I only did two interviews, um, and that was good for me too. Well, let me ask you that question: How then do you balance this chaos with the fact that you're so in demand by media? Because everyone wanted to mm-hmm. talk to you. It was hard. I had to pick and choose which outlets were good for me because not everybody was on our side. Mm. And I think that's why I'm struggling. Like, I have a a very, like, big resentment towards media now Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's the big corporations that 
I thought would be on our side, but the second after the resignations, like they were publishing stories about like the coddled, like students being coddled and all of this other information. And I'm like, you all, a lot of them, I think they came down there with their correspondence and they had a set idea as what to what they were going to write about. They were going to find like somebody who was ignorant, speak well, not ignorant, but not as well spoken, mm-hmm. um, to talk about the issue and make us all look bad. Like that was their intention, and you could tell that. And so that's when you saw a lot of like the different articles, like just really trying to discredit the work of the students, trying to discredit the work of me and Jonathan Butler, and you know um, the football team calling them all whiners too, and. It was just really bad for a while. And so my relationship with the media was very selective. Um, I remember I only interviewed a lot of times with Al Jazeera, and Mm -hmm. I don't think they're around anymore. (laughs) But um, because they were so focused on getting the story right. Um, And I remember making connections with reporters like Wesley Lowry, who was... Mm -hmm. was, excellent. He was wonderful because he he got the story out the way that it should be out. Um, and I think that was the thing that got me when I realized, like, how, there was so much bias in, in the media and, like, how they were covering this. And they were messing it all up. And even the student newspaper, The Man Eater, which is, like, known for getting everything messed up, they, they were more accurate than the national media that was coming in to tell this story that they knew nothing about. And so when the, you know, when you get to the spring, there was something really beautiful about spring mm-hmm. on a college campus like that. All of the trees and the mm-hmm. flowers, and there's something kind of magical happens when it starts to warm up, mm-hmm. and people are out, and the sun's shining. Um, it feels like you're in a brochure because it is so beautiful. Yes. Um, what is it like when you're approaching graduation? Um, it's messy because, like I keep telling you, I, I, I feel like administrators at universities and even professors and all the staff, like they're like, well, this happens in waves. Like the students go home. Luckily, they graduate. It's this idea that, like, they forget everything Mm -hmm. and they don't come ready. Yes. And I think that that has been one of the things that I hope people are learning. Students stay ready. And Mm -hmm. so this idea that we'll just get them through graduation, we'll get a few of them out, and then we can start over with a new group. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. like that. There's always a fallout. And I know that the university is going through it with low enrollments Mm -hmm. and, and having a hard time getting people to come to the university. But for the students who were there, summer doesn't erase that pain. No. And the other part of it is that that's why I told the administration a long time ago, I'm like, you all need to work hard on these issues long long term and you all need to make them a priority in every single meeting. Because just because your university isn't blowing up doesn't mean that you don't have a problem with inclusion. And I think that's the issue, especially a lot of when I remember Indiana, uh, their university president put out, well, at, you know, at least we're not like Mizzou. And the next thing you know, he had students in his office protesting. This we're not Mizzou thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting thing because um, I, of course, wanted to talk about it all the time in class because that's where I went and it's important. And I said, do you think this would happen here? Mm-hmm. And the students said, well, I think we can have issues. But I think people listen to what we have to say. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was the key point. Mm -hmm. When our students sit in, someone's going to talk to them about sitting in. And it may not resolve anything. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, someone's going to be like, okay, you're sitting in somewhere. We might need to have a conversation. I think what I saw at Mizzou was an inability to not only, like, not meet students halfway, to even take a step towards students who are saying some very, very powerful things. Mm -hmm. And so do you feel like... 
the desire to just get through to graduation meant that you would be gone. And I don't know if Jonathan's still a student there. He graduated as well. And it's like, Jonathan will be It's like, okay, these kids are going to be gone and we get a do-over. Well, I don't know why they, they would think that anymore because, you know, all of the hell that was raised on campus after Ferguson was by, you know, the three women and they graduated um, last year. Interesting. And so I think that over the summer, the university thought that everything would be all right. And then hell broke loose two times, three times than what it was before. Because even, even during Ferguson, like, people were writing articles on the University of Missouri. It was more of like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the mm-hmm. Kansas City Star. But, you know, it was, you know, when, when the fall came and that Facebook post that I put went out, it went straight to the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And that's when it made our issues like more of a na- we had a national eye now more than ever um, because and that was the thing that I talked about with every reporter who came in my office after that because that was generating a lot of media storm was the fact that the student body president called out racism and I said I want you to every single reporter that came in my office I'm like I want you to realize why you're here you're not here because Peyton Head like the black kid from Chicago spoke out about racism you're here because Peyton Head the student body president did. Do you ever regret becoming student body president? No, not at all. Um, I think it was one of the most rewarding, challenging, um, and life-shaping experiences of my life. Do you have any regrets about going to Mizzou? Um, no, not at all. I, I mean, I can't imagine being at any other university. Even as now, like as I'm looking like for grad school and, and for law school, I, I wouldn't go back to Mizzou for grad school or law school, but... It's just like there's no other place like it. Like it was home. Um, And that's what I was trying to tell the people because I hear this all the time. Well, if you hate it so much here, then leave. Just like they tell black people so much. Like if you hate it so much here, go back to Africa. Or they, um, I don't know. It's. It's, it's about this removal. Idea. Like, yeah. you remove yourself. Mm-hmm. Remove, remove, remove. And that doesn't, that doesn't change the situation. That was ultimately, like, my sophomore year when I dealt with this incident the first time, I decided to stay. Because I'm like, when you have a home, you don't just leave. You clean up your home. And I love Mizzou so much, and I, I loved and respected the students there so much that I'm like, I'm going to address this issue. I'm going to call it out because everybody else in this position has ignored it. Everybody else, it seems like. And so what was graduation like for you? Um, it was bittersweet um, because I was letting go of something that had shaped me, had changed my life, and also had hurt me so much. There was a lot of hurt and frustration, too, that I still have to this day with the university and, and the administration, like as an institution itself, for allowing the world to treat me the way that they did after that firestorm erupted. Because I'm like, you all, as an institution, the University of Missouri, you can eat this. You know what I mean? Like, you can say this. You can say that we've messed up in this area to save somebody. You know what I mean? Like, that's something that can be one statement sent out to the papers. You can say something like that, and the university will be fine. You know, we'll deal with issues like, but we can't get any worse. The legislature hates us. Like, yeah. you can do something like that. And the people who I, you know, worked with, all the time from the chancellor to the, the vice chancellor of student affairs, they didn't do anything about it. And that's what hurt the most. And so, like, in actuality, when I felt like I had given so much of my time to the university, it felt like it just wasn't appreciated. And people thought that, like, I had had, like, some vendetta against that minister. No, like, I really, really did support them. 
And it felt like they were supportive of me and the things that I was trying to do for the university and the students there. Because I told them from day one, like, I'm here for all of our students and all of our students whose voices have been uh, silenced over time. You know, that was the black students, that was the queer students, that was um, the Asian-American students. I was in that organization, too, member of the week. I was in every single thing at Mizzou. Like, Mizzou was my home. All of the students, you know, regardless of they were the, the white frat boy business majors, like, those were my homies, too. Like, that's my family. And I knew that you know, liberating the most oppressed of us would make us all free. And that was something that I stro- I strive to do from the very beginning. And so even the guys, like, who, who were from mid-Missouri, from rural Missouri, like, I had to have conversations with them, like, as to what was going on so that they would understand. Because it was hard. You had to break this down for all these different people of all these different identities, and not everybody was on everybody's side. Yeah. But graduating was just, it was difficult, um... But I think it was also liberating to a certain extent um, because Mizzou was changing so much. Everybody was, everybody I know was graduating. All of the activists, you know, were, a lot of them were graduating and leaving and moving on and we're all starting our lives and we're all trying to like find a home and a family of liberation wherever we go. So um, it's been a little difficult. I think it'll be more difficult when the fall starts and I actually see Mizzou going and I'm not there for the past four years. But I'm really, really excited to see some of the healing that needs to take place for campus. And I just hope and pray that our administration, like, they they realize that these aren't issues that you can continue to ignore. It's not something that's going to stop because a new school year begins and because people graduate. That, you know, they thought it was bad in 2014 after Ferguson. They thought it was bad last year, but, you know, there's a young group of people who are just as fired up, if not fired up before. And with everything happening in the news and media right now, I don't know what the state of college campuses will be in the fall. They've always been hotspots of activism in our nation. They've always been places that have influenced policy and all of these changes at the national level level to change the course of our country. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, the least you all can do is like, and people aren't asking you to invest $5 billion in an inclusion center of diversity and everything, even though I tried working on, like, a a project proposal (laughs) for that. But people, I told them, like, people just need to know that you are making significant strides towards inclusion, equity, and diversity relations on campus. And I said that, I'm like, I don't even know what it looks like, but just significant strides. Like, even if that's more of an investment in the Black Studies Department or, you know, or more of a commitment to your social justice centers or to education or diversity course requirement and really thinking about what that looks like. Like, those were the things that weren't happening after Ferguson, and those were the things that students demanded after Ferguson. So we had demands from last year, we had the demands of this year, and we had the demands from 1968. And the demands probably made in your time at Mizzou and before, it's like, you all get this stuff in front of you, you see what to do, find the resources, make it happen so we can move on. If students see that you've accomplished just at least two, three, four things out of the list that has been there since the 60s, maybe that'll give us hope that we have people who are in office who actually care about making this a place where all students feel comfortable and successful. You, you've outlined some really clear things that universities can do. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is listening to this podcast and their campus is in the middle of a heated moment, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to professors on how to support students through this time? I think the most important thing is to listen. Um, and that oftentimes we don't do that enough. And that's students as well. Um, but listen to each other. Um, listen and also work to validate those experiences too. 
Because a lot of times people will tell me the craziest things. And, you know, I'm like, if that's your experience, like, that's your experience. Now, I'm, I'm just working as hard as I can to understand it. But there are so many people, especially people um, a lot of times in academia who are so stuck on their own experience because they have like 17 books written and everything and they're so credible that they forget to listen to people and acknowledge their humanity. I was on a panel earlier this year here in D.C. with the American Constitution Society and I was paired with different lawyers um, and the, the topic was free speech on college campuses and it was a mess. I, I don't engage this topic. Yeah. Because it's because rarely is it about protecting speech, mm-hmm. and it's about it's about a backlash against people with grievances about institutional yep. racism. So I, I guess and that's I, exactly I guess what I am was. talking about it. Yeah. yeah, rarely. Now, if someone wants to have a really great conversation about speech, its impact, mm-hmm. expression, sure. But so rarely, when we include the words college campus, do we care yep. about actual speech and expression? And it's hard. And I remember just, like, sitting there, and I, I let all these people speak. I sat there like this, like, just, just, just looking straight at the audience because I'm like, I want you all to hear the ignorance that is coming. And one was, like, president of the Chicago Lawyers Association. The one on my left had, like, published all these books and everything. She equated um, the use of the N-word to the use of the B-word as a white feminist from the 70s. And it was like, wow, like, and these are lawmakers. And I said, this is a situation. You all don't get to value, you, like, you all don't get to see the, the hurt and shame and violence that is within this word because it doesn't affect you. But yet you all are the ones making the laws. So you're the ones who are going to sit here and tell me that I should pull myself up by my bootstraps and dust it off and move on and students on college campuses can't complain because that's according to the law, the law that you wrote. And I think that's just something, like, so important about moving forward It's just listening. Because when we don't even take the time to listen to each other, we, we can't validate anybody's experience because we already have what we're going to say in our mind and we're not listening at all. So, I don't know. It's been, it's been challenging moving forward. But I'm excited to see, like, where I go in the future with this, how I see it. Because after those experiences at Mizzou, I think I've learned one of the most valuable lessons in life. And that's to just truly do what makes you happy appreciate what makes you happy. Like I said before, like, like being black and both queer, like my identities, like, took me to the highest levels that I could achieve within school. Um, Like, I would be the scholar, I would be the president, I would be the homecoming king, most popular and all that. But I'm like, at this point, I don't care. Like, I really care about finding what makes me happy. And people are like, well, you should go to law school, you should go to grad school, you should do this, you should have this job. And I'm like, no, I really want to find, like, what makes me happy? And I think more of us should do that. We should define our own path to success, whatever that looks like. I'm going to ask you the last question that I ask everyone on this podcast. After this beautiful conversation, this just gave me my entire life. <laughs> um, if there's one thing, and this, this means a lot coming from you, if there's one thing you could have told all your professors in college, mm-hmm. one thing about yourself, what would you have said? About me? or yeah, just about, about you. Wow. Hmm. I would say that I will always be more and that there's more to me than meets the eye. And that's not just for me, but that's for everyone. And I think that's one of the most difficult problems we have today because as humans, we have this psyche that compartmentalizes people into these boxes. 
I was always put in boxes as I was growing up. Like people, people have stats, they have statistics that measure how far I will succeed in my life as a black man. People have an idea of how I should talk, how I should dress, how I should behave as a queer identified individual. And I've been oppressed by both communities my entire life, by the, the, by the, the, the queer community for being black and for the black community for being queer. And at this point, I'm like, I just want you to know, like, we have to start seeing each other as humans first. And if I could tell that to every single one of my professors and every single person in, in, in academia, it's like, stop looking at your students as, like, kids and these random, like, pimply... <laughs> you know, drinkers. And some of us are. I mean, I like a good happy hour or five. But <laughs> it's like we're so much more and we'll always be more. And you're never going to be able to assess my potential in anything just by looking at me. Thank you so much, Peyton. Thank you. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours A Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast. <laughs>